We've been studying Book of Jonah for five weeks, and today we come to the conclusion, and I want to talk about God's headaches. God has a headache. Uh, almost entitled today's sermon, God's Chronic Migraine Headaches. Does it sound a little blasphemous? How can the almighty perfect God have a headache? As you will see, God's headache comes from his heartaches. And both heartache and headache of God shows us how much God loves us. Because the Almighty God, who doesn't have to have any problem, let alone headache, he suffers both the heartache and headache because he is an all-loving God. So what is a God's headache? Do you want to know God's headache? God's headache is you and me. Okay, is that God speaking? <laughs> it's us. That's the conclusion of the book of Jonah. That's the crux of the story. God's problem is not Ninevites and pagans. God's problem is the Israelite and their prophets like Jonah. God's problem has not been the sinners who doesn't know, who don't know anything about God, but God's problem has been saints who claim to know God. They miss his heart, as we say Cornerstone Bible study, and misunderstand his love and truth. And the worst part of all, the saints who not listen to God. You know, problem of world always, you know, has not been the uh, thickness of darkness but a lightness of a light. That is our problem. This week, I attended a, 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 a Texas Baptist uh, Executive Board Directors meeting. And those of you who uh, don't know much about Texas Baptist, it's the largest evangelical Protestant denomination in Texas. And uh, it was a really eye-opening uh, conference and I could see and feel the uh, temperature or condition of evangelical churches in America, not only Texas. And uh, I want to share just uh, two, two things from there. One, more churches, including many Baptist churches in Texas, have a less adult education program than before. Churches are now have a less program less Bible study, less small group ministry than before. All the pastors and directors, mission directors are saying their convenience is winning out over commitment. Mega churches are definitely becoming role models of many churches where minimalism became a new norm for churches. And as a result, seminaries, also their enrollment suffered much. So Texas Baptist uh, support uh, eight Christian universities and seminaries, and uh, most of them except uh, uh, Baylor Truett uh, Seminary, everyone suffered significantly, one, at least one-third. And meantime, all the seminaries, they try to really meet this challenge in a very, I might say, I didn't, I was in subcommittee of a theological education. Next, it's my first time, so I'm uh, asking a question. Next time, I'm going to speak. They are facing this challenge in a worldly way, by that means they just lower the, all the requirements for mo more people to take seminary, more people to come to seminary. So I listed my generation just a few years ago. The basic seminary degree for pastor is a master of divinity, and the most of us have a 92, 93, 92, you know, uh, credits, semester credit. Nowadays, there are a lot of MD programs, about one-third less. And worst part of it, most seminaries now going to online education. It's like we're sending doctors and dentists and pharmacists to online education. Would you like to go to a doctor who got training through the online education and going to try on you? Then why not the pastors? 
The largest seminary in America right now is a Liberty Baptist University. Through online education, they have over 5,000 master level students. And all of the schools are copying them, trying to copy them. This all tells us one thing, tells me one thing. America, we are clean, we are developing a cultural Christianity of easy believing and narrow rightness. And uh, we made a fun of uh, you know, some Christians in the past, such as the medieval Christians, their obsession with the indulgences. Do you know what indulgence is? You know, during the medieval time, Roman Catholic Church, they didn't teach anything about the Bible. They still, still they don't teach. They go through, you know, the rituals and then, you know, basically taking a communion that's on their main agenda and then maybe confession right. They taught this idea that uh, when you offer, when you give a special offering to God, that special grace, special commitment will help your loved ones to move from purgatory to heaven faster than scheduled time. So during the Reformation, there was an Italian monk came to Luther's town, and he even made a, this uh, a cute, cute, ugly, um, cute, horribly cute rhyme that when your coins spring in the coffers, you know, the coffers of offering, your loved one's soul will spring from purgatory to heaven. So coin wings your relatives spring to heaven. And that's what he was preaching and the Luther couldn't stand it and the Reformation began. Now, we made a fun of those uh, you know, miserable uh, Christian, Roman Catholic Christians for their ignorance. I'm not sure a few hundred years from now when they look at us today, when people look at the American evangelical Christians today, I'm not sure whether we will have, we will have a good review, whether they will say we really live faithfully all the biblical commands. I'm really worried about country because we are living evangelicals. We are only evangelicals in name. And we definitely need a God's grace to restore biblical Christianity. So those of you new to the Forest Community Church, we are not here to build a successful or big church. Our primary goal is to build a biblical community, biblically functioning community. And what does it mean is we have a two convictions, two major convictions. One is a house church. We believe that you need to come to two, in order to grow spiritually, you need to have accountability. Nobody goes to school without exams and accountability. You know, even online education, you have to take a test, right? We need anything serious, you have to have accountability. Without accountability, human beings, we don't follow through. So house church, that is for our spiritual accountability. This is where we experience a true church, true intimate Christian fellowship. And the other one, other arms of our church is uh, our discipleship program called the Good Shepherd College. And so every quarter, we have uh, three quarters a year, we have uh, homegrown Bible studies, Good Shepherd, I mean, a Cornerstone Bible study, Livingstone Bible study, John Discipleship 1 and 2, and the Experiencing God and so forth. So we really, this is uh, the, the way that we want to build up the biblical community. So we really want you to, if you're serious about our church, you need to participate in this. Our church is not about Sunday worship and fellowship. Book of Jonah, in this sense, has a timely message for us. It awakens us to see that we are God's headache. And also, it shows us how we can change our hearts and our lives to bring up due glory and joy to our God. How do we elevate the God's headache? We need to face and correct our own prejudice, our own spiritual Christian prejudice with the God's love and truth. What is a prejudice? Prejudice is a preconceived opinion or notion that is not based on 
reason or actual experience. In that sense, biblical prejudice or Christian prejudice is not something not based on God's truth and experience of the Holy Spirit. And Jonah is suffering throughout the book because of his own prejudice. So in this book, the final chapter 4, we see three things about prejudice. One, the condition of a prejudice or picture of a prejudice. Number two is that the cure or prescription for prejudice. And number three will be the challenge to confront our own prejudice. So let's turn to Jonah chapter 4. And let's read, first of all, verse 1 to 5. And then we'll read the rest a little bit later. So are you ready? So let's read responsibly. I'll read first and you follow. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in his shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Last week, we saw the greatest revival and spiritual awakening in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible we, we saw hidden nation, they repented so thoroughly with utter humility and desperation. From common men all the way to the king, not just the humans, animals fasted and repented and turned away from their violent ways. Have you ever seen Egypt done that? Babylon did it? I mean, even Israel, we haven't seen such a fasting and revival movement. Nineveh, that's a very pagan and violent heathens. They did a wholehearted repentance. And as a result of Jonah's one day, half-hearted preaching. That is Jonah's chapter 3. And today, because as a result of that, God aborted his judgment on the city of, Jonah, city of Nineveh. And then verse 1 said, it didn't sit well with Jonah. <laughs> Actually, he was very angry, right? The key word in the verse, chapter 4 is angry. Four times. Verse 1, verse 4, and verse 9, twice. Jonah being angry, 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 angry. Instead of being very grateful for being used by God, to you know, instrument of such a sweet revival, Jonah was angry and actually was very sarcastic to God. So he is actually quoting the scripture here, verse 2. He prayed to God, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I left for Tarshish. I knew you are gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, God who relent from sending calamity. And I can't take it anymore. So take my life. You know, Jonah is quoting these five famous characters of God. Characters of God. Which appear in the Old Testament over and over again. But he forgot that the first time, that description of God as a loving, caring, patient, faithful God comes out where? Exodus 34. And then he forgot that self-proclamation of God toward Israel actually happened after one of the most horrible mistakes and failures Israelites committed. Anybody knows? Exodus 32, what happened? Israelites, they worshipped idol called golden calf. And God forgave them. And God said, nevertheless, I'll give you a second chance, and I will be gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. I will not easily punish you, 
I'll suffer for you. Jonah, somehow, he forgot the context of the verse, the Bible that he quote. Just like many Christians or even sometimes pastors, to quote the scripture without the context, you know, that's the worst you can do. You, call, you, you use a text without context, there you go. Satan does that all the time. Uh, politicians too. <laughs> now, Jonah forgot. What Jonah forgot was that the grace that he was, excessive grace that he accusing God of, is the same grace that sustained Israel and him. When he was challenging God, you have too much grace, he forgot that he was a recipient of the same grace. Somebody said, if a grace of God, that the grace that God has shown you does not spill over people around you, that's not the real grace. If you really experience the grace of God, it must all overflow from you into other people's life. It should change your view of life. Grace that make you self-important and special above everyone, that's not the really grace. That is actually grace that Satan wants us to have. That is arrogance. Jonah, somehow, he degenerated, he kind of perverted God's grace into license for Israelite special identity and election. And Jonah's, Jonah's mind, there's a two categories of people. People that God must bless, people God must curse or punish. And Israelite, they are the people of God. God should have blessed them. God should have blessed them. And then in that category, Jonah's prejudice goes farther. He was saying that any enemy of Israel is God's enemy. Any enemy of Israel is God's enemy. Sometimes we feel that way too. Anytime we see some of our enemies, adversaries, you know, doing well or enjoying God's blessing, we feel kind of a, uh huh, what's going on here, God? You know, I don't know about you. I do have uh, some of those people. Seriously, I confess. You know, uh, I have a certain pastors that I don't respect. I really don't respect. I dislike. <laughs> Reason? John chapter 10, Jesus divided our pastors into two categories, higher hand and then good shepherds. Higher hand, they are doing ministry for the sake of a compensation. And then good shepherds, they are doing ministry for the sake of sheep. I got compensated. So I'm kind of a higher hand. I'm trying to be a good shepherd. But I know some people who are really higher hand. I know them. And then my problem, when their ministry church grows, I'm becoming a little sour with God. Hello? Here I am praying my you know, heart out, and then you know, we barely, barely you know, surviving, and then they, or he. But the thing is this. God needs all kinds of pastors to reach out all kinds of people. If those are high-end pastors God uses as an instrument to help whoever in that particular you know, stage of life, praise belongs to God. But still it's a heart. See their ministry flourishing. Okay? So now you know that I'm a fan of Joel Austin. <laughs> And uh, now, Thomas Merton is a Roman Catholic uh, uh, writer and thinker. He wrote, um, he said this, related to the, the, uh, this notion. He said, do not be quick to assume that uh, your enemy is an enemy of God just because he is your enemy. Perhaps your enemy, he is your enemy precisely because he can find nothing in you that gives glory to God. Perhaps he fears you because of he can find nothing in you of God's love and God's kindness and God's patience and mercy and understanding of weaknesses of people. Do not be quick to condemn people who no longer believe in God. For it is perhaps 
your own coldness, avarice, your mediocrity, mediocrity, and the materialism, your sensuality and selfishness that have killed their faith. Ooh. In another word, they don't see God in your life, and that's why they are close to God. It's scary. You know, I said this before, but there are two Bibles. Christians will read a Bible to know God. Non-Christians read a Christian's life to know God. We are the books to non-Christians. If we don't show joy and love and gratitude in our life, don't, don't talk about the you know, gospel. You know, I, especially those of us really praying for the VIPs and trying to reach out to non-Christian co-workers, I want to say this. Please don't speak Christianese easily. Don't talk about the gospel easily. You know, before you talk about, leave out common sense and courtesy and you know, caring and kindness too in your workplace and wherever you are. And then if they ask you a question, according to 1 Peter 3, 15, then you give them a reason for the hope in your heart with respect and humility. That's what we do. Muhammad Ali once said, we are all God's people, but we are prejudiced, and we separate people into Jews and Mexicans and blacks and Italians, but God doesn't see colors. God doesn't see colors, whatever the colors is. You know, at least none of us here will, you know, we welcome everyone, every race and every color and every whatever, you know, gender, these days, the gender became a very tricky issue. We welcome everybody, whatever gender you are. We welcome everybody. Jesus died for all. Straight or non-straight, wherever. You know, Jesus died for all. I was hesitant to share this, but I, I want to share because I'm a second generation. We, we, most of us are second generation Asian Americans here. So I want to share this. My spiritual father and mentor, Pastor Don Kim, he was a godfather of a Korean Baptist in, in America. His church is the first church, Korean Southern Baptist Church in America. He came to Los Angeles 1956 as a Baptist missionary from Texas. He was educated at Southwestern here and went to, you know, back then Texas sent a missionary to California. <laughs> I think now the missionary is coming to Texas, but anyway. But the, so my pastor came in, this brilliant pastor, and this church was located near Olympic Boulevard and uh, uh, Vermont. And uh, that's where actually Koreatown is located. Those of you who've been to Los Angeles, you know, ask me later. Koreatown came out of my pastor's church because many of their church members, they lived around the church. These are the old foreign students at the time. And they invited their relatives, and they all lived nearby, and that led to the Korean community, I mean, Korean community in Los Angeles. But that location, the Korea town, today is a middle class, but at the beginning, in the 19, late 1950s and early 60s, that was a lower class, a lower, a socioeconomically lower class neighborhood, a lot of Latinos and blacks. And my pastor was a good pastor, great preacher, and uh, so many people came to this, I mean, church started growing, and uh, lo and behold, a good number of African Americans came to the church. And guess what? Who didn't like this African American people coming to the church? Say it loud. Who didn't like them? <laughs> Koreans! <laughs> the racists! <laughs> Koreans! So my pastor heard enough complaining, and he got to the point where he has to make a decision. So he called these African-American members and asked them, for you, there are many other black churches that you can go to. But for these stupid Koreans, this is only church. So would you create a space by living? So that's how the church became a large mega, I mean, what is this, called successful Korean church in Los Angeles. Now, before we judge them, this first generation racist Korean in Los Angeles, what about us? 
You know, we don't say bluntly like that. We are far more sophisticated. Do we welcome everybody? Or do we welcome people just like us? Do we just welcome uh, Christians who are trying another church? Or do we seriously seek out the lost people in our church? You know, I want to encourage you. When we seek lost people and put the gospel at the forefront of our ministry, our church will be more dynamic than ever before. I saw it a month ago when I, well, John and JJ and Joseph and Jamie, five of us went to New Life Fellowship in Houston, the church that, from where we learned the uh, uh, house church ministry. I attended Sunday worship service and I was blown away because in front, I mean, uh, uh, in front of our pew, there was two white senior citizens People well into 60s and who knows, you know, couple worshiping as actively as anybody else. And then rest of the pew, there was an Asian-American young man with a weird haircut. <laughs> and they're all worshiping together and agree. I, it was a beautiful sight. People transcending age, culture, probably political view too. And then worshiping Jesus together. That's where I realized that uh, pastors who try to make a church multi-ethnic, whatever multi, you know what? That doesn't happen artificially. When you put the gospel forefront of your ministry, gospel brings people together. Make a, multi, make a family of God naturally. Reason we don't have this diversity or dynamics in the church is because we are welcoming only people like us. So, that's the challenge we have. Let me move quickly. Then what's the cure of a prejudice? That's come from the rest of the chapter. So let's read over 6 to 11. Are you ready? Let's read it one more time. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give a shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plan, though you did not tend it or make it grow. I sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have a concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Jonah has this audacity. You know, side note, but it's true. When God asked him, well, is it right for you to be angry? He didn't answer. He just walked out. <laughs> Do you like somebody walked out of the conversation? Jonah did. And instead of talking to God, he's a protesting in action. So what did he do? He built a little you know, a, a shack or a shelter east of the city and waiting to see whether God will destroy the city in 40 days. Whether God will come around his thinking. That's what Jonah is doing. He's a protesting. And, strata, and and this is a unique, this is a very unique, this is a very Hebrew, Jewish, and also biblical picture of being a prophet. You know, Jewish prophets, they are not robots. They are not a kind of religious boy scout that God said, do this, and they, yes, sir, and then they do it. They are not an eagle scout. They are very, very emotionally honest and troubled and then vocal people. Like a Jonah, I'm angry at you, God! Or, you know, Jeremiah said, why, why, why am I born, God? Why did you call me to the ministry? 
if you look at the, all the prophetic books in the Old Testament, you see this raw emotion coming out of prophets. That actually shows that our God is a relational God and God welcomes it. In other religions, such a prophet don't survive and don't, don't exist. Only in the Bible, God welcomes heart-to-heart -heart talk like that. So you are angry at God, like a Jonah? Come and talk to us in house church, on me, or wherever. Because, it's, it's, you know, honesty is the number one principle. Now, Jonah is a protesting God. And if I were God, I would say, you despicable guy who should have digested it in the fish, you're still talking to me? Now, oh, now, now still kind of uh, showing me bad attitude? I'll just, you know, fire him or literally fire him from heaven, whatever it takes. But God is still patient with Jonah. That's amazing. This, you know, you think an amazing thing is that God avoided a judgment for Nineveh? For me, amazing thing is that God is patient with Jonah. This kind of a very ungrateful, you know, very half-hearted, reluctant, you know, a servant. God is very patient and trying to really help him to see the truth. This God gives me hope. Hope for my life, my ministry, my marriage, and my family, and my children. Yes. Now, Albert Einstein once said, it's harder to crack a prejudice than an atom. It's much harder to break the prejudice than atom. And Charlotte Bronte, she, uh, the writer of Jane Eyre, you know, Charlotte Bronte, she said, prejudice, it is well known, are most difficult to eradicate from the heart whose soil has never been loosened or fertilized by education. They grow there, firm as a weed among the stone. How do we deal with the prejudice? You know, Jonah, he got into he, his prejudice about Ninevite, against the Ninevite, his theology, this is a very ethnocentric theology, is so strong, he couldn't think out of it. He'd rather die with that wrong theology than repent and serve God. That's what he's doing, right? And how did God try to help him? God gives Jonah object lesson. So while Jonah is protesting, God made this miracle of a plant that gave him a shade. And Jonah was so happy. And then God takes that away with a worm that chews all the plant and the, the plant and also extra heat from scorching desert wind. What God is trying to do with Jonah is that God is taking back to Jonah to appreciate what? We said this before. Two Sundays of a common grace. Common grace is a God's universal grace through nature to everybody. Whether you believe or not, God gave all of us same sunshine and rain and same space to live, same time to you know, spend. God gave us a grace. So God is bringing Jonah back to that common grace. Do you remember Jonah's prayer, Jonah's awakening in the fish's valley? He realized that living each moment is grace of God in fish valley, fish's belly. Same thing is happening here. God is showing him, are you grateful? This time God was comparing Jonah. God is challenging to compare that. Compare your little joy, little pain, with my joy and my pain. And God is saying that you didn't do anything for that plant and you are so grateful for that little, little thing. I am here to really, really care for hundreds of thousands of people. By, by the way, 120,000 people who don't know left and right, who are they? What age group people is he talking about? God is talking about who doesn't know right from the left? You don't? <laughs> We're talking about children, infant. You know, infants, they don't know right from the left. So God is saying there's more than 120,000 infants and then innocent animals. 
Here is a you know, promise verse for you, for animal lovers. You know, God cares about your pet or animals, so we'll see them in heaven. And here, God was challenging Jonah. Jonah, compare your little joy and little pain to mine. And then Jesus, God is actually challenging all of us. Because oftentimes, just like Jonah, we care about our little pleasure far more than what God calls us and the principles of life that God wants to bless us with. You know, every time we try to do something, we have to make it sure that it's the most convenient. We are so used to convenience that anything out of convenience and out of schedule, we cannot do it. While there is a little bit of a you know, leisure activity, you go extra, you know, extra miles. Christians, when there is some you know, retreat or something, yeah, I'm beating you right now. You know, it's a hard to make a... We go annual retreat once a year. And by grace of God, I'm, I'm, I'm actually no cause to beat you down here because our church, we have an annual retreat always the last weekend of October. And the last year, for the first time, we have over-registration, so we shut down the registration on due date. And this year, we're trying to find the bigger space to you know, accommodate everybody. But year before, I have to pull the, you know, I have to, you know, one weekend out of the, you know, 52 weekends, can you spend the spiritual honeymoon in a very posh, rich site? We go fancy glamping. So it's really great. And also very inexpensive. Yes, this is all advertisement. It's really great. Yet, we have, you know, people still out of convenience miss their blessing. Before we kind of uh, laugh at Jonah, make him, you know, little, let's think about what is a little things in our life we so preciously guard that God invite us to invite, you know, participate in joy, and we say, no, I have, you know, I have a schedule on that time, time slot. I cannot do it. What we ask in our church is not much. Beside us on their worship, maybe Friday in a house church, three, four hours. I mean, usually, you know, three hours. If you enjoy, you stay a little longer. And then Bible study, two hours, you know. It's not much. Yet we think it is giving our arms and legs and whatever. And I want to tell you, God is worth of our time and our resource and our money. Let me come, let me come to. So God is, uh, God is showing Jonah, I care about these people. They are in my heart. I'm so glad they responded to your preaching. Job well done. Can you participate in my joy for them? Shouldn't you be grateful with me? I mean, rejoicing with me. I want to say this. What angers us reveals a lot about our true values. And what we rejoice also reveals a lot of our joys. What makes us really happy? First Community Church. Followers of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, what makes you really happy? Do you have a joy of God in your heart? You know, God pursued you and me as if we are the only one. That's what we are learning in Cornerstone Bible study. And when you reach out to the lost people, God, you are really, really bringing... Can you imagine you found a lost child somewhere and then lead that child to the parents you're looking for? You know how much the parents will be grateful? We're talking about eternal salvation. Let me move on to the last point, confronting our own prejudice. Today's book of Jonah, story of Jonah, if you look at the verse 11, it ends with a question, right? There are not many books in the Bible that ends with a question. I asked this in the early service. What is the other book? There is only two books in the Bible that ends with a question. 
Anybody? Anybody's been doing a Bible reading? No? There's another book. This is a Bible trivia. Another book in the Bible ends with a question. Oh, okay. Han? Okay. okay. I thought Han was giving me a signal. Okay. That book is a none other than Nahum, a book after Nahum, Prophet Nahum. Coincidentally, not coincidentally, but both books were written about Nineveh. Nahum was a prophet, prophet that warned Nineveh about the arrogance and coming judgment. And Nahum chapter 3, verse 18 says this, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wounds is a fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. Who has not felt your endless cruelty? God was challenging Nineveh for the last time that unless you repented, my judgment and the calamities will fall on you and everybody will rejoice. Are you hearing me? That's how the prophet, the book of Nahum ends. Same thing. In the book of Jonah, God is calling Jonah and Israelite. Do you pray for the repentance of evil people, those are lost people around you? Now, when was the book of Jonah was written? This book of Jonah is a very, has, you know, the time was written is, a, is a very incredible because according to Jewish tradition and the most scholars, it's written uh, uh, late 5th century or early 4th century after Israelites came back from exile. And when Israelites came back from Babylonian exile, after 70 years, do you know what was their sentiment? They didn't just return to their homeland. They returned to their homeland with a mission to rebuild their country. And at the time, their sentiment was revealed in Nehemiah chapter 13. And then let me read that for you. While they are in exile, they had a real repentance and they had a self-examination and they found that we are in the Babylonian exile, not because our God is not powerful to protect us, but because we sinned. And according to Moses' Moses' last sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, God told us very clearly in the promised land that we don't follow God's law, God will kick us out of the promised land. So it is the you know, our disobedience to God's law that cost us homeland and we suffered. Theologically, we call it Deuteronomist theology. This is a term for that, Deuteronomist theology. So their faith was a Deuteronomy faith. And with that, they came back and rebuilt their country and then listened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13.23, Nehemiah said, In those days I saw men of Judah who had married a woman from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or language of one of the other people, Canaanite. Did not know how to speak the language of Judah. They forgot the Hebrew. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of, some of, some, some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this, Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king, no wise king like Solomon. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you are too, you too are doing the, all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? So when it comes to Ezra chapter 9 and Ezra chapter 2, chapter 10, you see Israelites, they are divorcing their, their foreign wives or pagan wives and kicking out their children. They are in the hyper-Deuteronomistic theology and faith and reform. Anything but Israel, that was their motto. Now I want to say one thing very clearly. What Nehemiah condemned here was not an interracial marriage. What Nehemiah condemned here is that Israelite forgot their identity. That's what Nehemiah was condemning because 
Israelite Astarel Palestine continued to live in foreign pagan culture and marry the foreign wives. And even if they didn't marry many of their third, fourth, whatever generation, like many of you, they forgot the native language of their ancestors. But then what happened? Two centuries later, Jewish leaders in Alexandria, they gathered together and they translated the Hebrew Bible into the Greek Bible. And we call it Septuagint, or translation of 70 rabbis. So language is not a problem. Interracial marriage is not a problem. Once again, verse like this was quoted by wrong people out of context. So during the, you know, in the Deep South, you know, there was a Jim Crow law. Use a verse like this is a racial purity. Purity. Bible talking about doesn't talk about racial purity. Bible talking about the purity of a faith. That's what he's talking about. Now, so when Jonah's story was uh, told, it was time when Jewish people are very, very hyper-nationalistic, hyper-ethnocentric. And that's when God gave this story to awaken them. I'm not just a God of Israel. I'm God of everyone. Your pagan neighbors, they are also, I want to save them and bring them in. And guess what later? Somebody used the same story to express a God's unconditional, unfailing, indiscriminate love for us, Jesus. Matthew 20, Matthew 12. I'll close with this. Jesus said, some of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, said to Jesus, Teacher, we want a sign from you. This is after Jesus performed so many miraculous, powerful signs. And some of the Pharisees asked Jesus a sign from you. By the sign, some people, scholars, think that they actually, they really want to follow Jesus. They really want Jesus to Messiah, so they want Jesus to use military power. Show us violent military supernatural power you have so that we can kick the Romans out of it. We can reclaim the Davidic kingdom here. To such a Pharisees, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation, ask for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of prophet Jonah. For Jonah has three days and three nights in belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. The man of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then here, someone, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus used the story of Jonah to awaken to his own people and all of us. When Jewish leaders, Pharisees said, are you going to save Israel from Romans' hand and make us a number one kingdom in the world? Just like us, that God, you're going to make me happy, right? More fulfilled than anything in this world. God was saying, no, my vision, my vision is a far more than that. And what is it Jesus did? In what ways Jesus was greater than Jonah? Unlike Jonah ran away from God's call, Jesus perfectly obeyed the God's call. Unlike Jonah who left his home kicking and screaming, Jesus left the heaven, Father's bosom, with love. And unlike Jonah who rejected God's purpose, God's call for Nineveh, Jesus is embraced. Jesus embraced his mission to, to be a light of the world by bringing salvation to ends of the earth with his own life and death. Unlike Jonah, who, who went to the fish's belly unwillingly, Jesus willingly went to death of the, into the heart of the earth, the death for us. This is the Savior that we are following. So, what is a prejudice that God is revealing to us? 
My prayer for us in the Lenten season, starting this Wednesday, we have a, you know, Ash Wednesday, we have a 40 days of a special Christian season to contemplate on Christ's suffering love for us. My prayer is not that we just have another pious, you know, Christian thinking uh, reflection on Christ's love, but much more than that I pray. God will show us our personal individual prejudice against his call, against his challenge. And God reveal that our own little idols in our life and then surrender those idols at the altar of a suffering Christ. Let me close with a poem. There is an American poet, a Presbyterian pastor, and literary expert uh, wrote a, a poem called The You Jonah, actually it's published in the book. Thomas Carlyle, he said this, the last two stanzas go this. Jonah stuck to his shady seat and waited for God to come around his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for host of Jonah's in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. I hope we all come around into God's joy and God's pain. When we realize in God's heart there is an ache for the lost people because they are also children of God, that pain will really, really help us to overcome all the prejudices. So let's close in prayer. Let's give our, ask God to help us to overcome our prejudice. Once again, I want to ask, I want to remind everyone that we have our own Nineveh. What is our Nineveh? Place or people that we don't want to go to. Place and people that we feel so scared. Place and people that make us very uncomfortable. That's our Nineveh. But you have to remember, when you go to Nineveh, God is there with you. God never sends his people alone. He always goes with us. Our God is Emmanuel, God. So let's really pray, God, with a, you know, one minute of, a, you know, this is a new habit that we're trying to cultivate. So as uh, our worship team plays uh, the music of a reckless love, of God for us. Let's have a minute of a personal prayer to God. Lord, help me that as you chase me down till I was found, help me to chase down those people, those VIPs around me with a love and prayer. Lord, give me your wisdom. I don't know how to reach out to them, but you do. Holy Spirit, open their heart and help them to really see that that, that, that Jesus somehow in me and also I pray that when I invite them to the house church they will respond. Only you can make that happen Holy Spirit. Help us. Let's pray. Let's pray for you along with the music and whatever comfortable